All right, James chapter 4. One other kind of introductory comment. Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is an ordinance of the church. It's commissioned by the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, reinforces the priority of the Lord's Supper. Um, It is about remembering Him. It is about appreciation. It is about, about celebration. It is about personal reflection, um, but it's also about examination. Uh, One of the things that you need to take advantage of as often as we gather for the purpose of remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his blood, his body, is to appreciate again the significant price of our salvation, its effect by way of our justification, our righteousness we enjoy, perfect righteousness, not our own, that which we receive is a gift from God. Harry Walls is as righteous before God as Jesus is because I enjoy a righteousness that he gifted to me. Sanctification is what's happening now, living out the reality of what I have. But the reason I have it is because of what Jesus did to provide it. And that's what we do today. We celebrate that. We consider that. We, can, we reflect and worship out of that. But one of the ways you worship, and I don't want you to waste today, is the sanctification process of the Spirit of God illuminating, convicting your heart through the Word of God, whether it's this hour or the next one, where the Spirit of God exposes to your benefit, an area of your life that's incongruous with what God saved you to become. And I was just talking a little earlier in this hour. There are things in us. We are not without sin. We have not been perfected or glorified. We have had a work begun in us, but it is not a finished work. And don't waste today's opportunity to evaluate, to calibrate, and to address issues that need to be addressed. Sin is destructive. And not dealing with it is damaging to you and everyone around you. So take advantage of the Lord's Supper. You're going to see what it costs by by way of symbol. Don't waste the benefit of that gift. Ask the Spirit of God by your confession Hey, this is not right. And we're going to talk for the third time today on James chapter 4 on a problem with our tongue. Christianity is reflected in what we do. The book of James is the work that validates the confession, I'm a Christian. This is how Christianity lives in real time. It's not just a confession of your mouth, although it includes that. It's a, an expression of your life. And the big argument of this book is you can say it and not have it. And if you say you have faith and you don't live the validating fruits of your faith, you need to reconsider your claim. Because the greatest tragedy of all is a claim that's not real. And then on the day that it matters, your last day, your last breath day, or the day he returns, the day nobody knows, you're not ready. And there's not re You're not given a new opportunity. There's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Anybody know when they are going to die? 
that should cause you to consider your situation, your condition, your relationship with Jesus Christ. This book is a reflection that is meant to help you to that end so that you are a person of true faith. And secondly, people see what God wants them to see through your life and influence. That's the purpose of James. And today we're talking again. I'm going to read it to you and then I'm going to springboard out of it because I want to punctuate it. Um, I was going to start verses 13 through 17 just because I could make more progress if I actually take another paragraph. But I wanted to leave you with something that is a flag in the soil of your heart that undeniably says this can't be. And this, the other side and the place where I want to go today, this is what should be. This is what can't be and this is what should be. Verse 11, James chapter 4, of what we cannot do. Do not speak against one another. King James, speak evil. LSB, slander. Speaking against means to talk down. It's destructive language. It's damaging language. It literally means to put someone down with words, true or false. And that's why I don't like the translation slander. Slander is something not true. This can be true. It's still destructive. And it's when you speak something true or false to speak down, to talk about someone in a way that detracts, diminishes, and damages their reputation. If you're going to deal with that, we talked about that the last time I was with you, you're going to deal with it in a particular way for a particular purpose. There's a process and a purpose. If there's sin, deal with it. But do what Jesus prescribes. Matthew 18, you go to them, you talk to them. If they don't listen, you get two or three. You gather again. You help them see. If they don't listen to them, you tell it to the church, which is what's about to happen today. Someone is going to have their name read at the Lord's Supper because they're refusing to listen. And it's easy to see that as a negative thing. I want to say unequivocally, that is a loving thing. If I'm living in sin, the most loving thing you can do for me is engage as many people as possible to help me. That's what this is today, an act of love. You're also going to see another act today, which is the restoration of someone's name who was read, whose name was read several years ago. That's the goal. And uh, that's what this involves, it involves avoiding negative speak, injurious speak, talking down, diminishing somebody's reputation. Stop it. It's literally in the Greek language. It's stop doing this because it's incongruous and because of its implications. Verse 11, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother because speaking against always involves some kind of judgment speaks against the law. Whose law? God's law. So you not only tear down a person, you're tearing down the law of God that forbids that action, yours. You're speaking against it. You're speaking against the law, and you're judging the law, and if you judge the law, guess what? You're not a doer of it, but rather stand in judgment of it. The problem with that is you usurp authority that's not your own. There is only one and only one lawgiver and judge, the one, emphatic, 
who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you, Harry, to judge your neighbor, to make assessments that are not um, possible for you? You limit information. You're limited by information unless you're following the purpose of dealing with sin that you know and you're addressing it biblically. You're in position where you don't know all the facts. God knows all the facts. He reserves the right of judgment for himself. Don't do it. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not qualified. So the encouragement and the statement I'd want to make about what God has said is stop tearing down with your tongue. And we looked at several passages in the Old Testament. Don't be a tail bearer and don't be a tail hearer because the Bible plainly says this is forbidden. Leviticus 19.16, thou shalt not go up and down as a tail bearer. That's somebody who traffics in spicy words or spicy stories among the people. Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor or, or take up the reproach against a neighbor. I am Yahweh. Don't do it. And we, uh, we recognize that this is what God has said. Stop doing it. Two, why he has said it is if you do it, you tear down the law of God that forbids it. You judge the law as unfit to be followed, his law. You usurp authority of God and the place of God alone as judge. And God calls that wicked pride and will dishonor those who dishonor others by dishonoring him. I want you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 12. And this is my thou shalt not plant the flag. And I don't want to encourage you of what you should set your sights on as a follower of Jesus Christ. Psalm 101.5, whoever secretly slanders or speaks down against his neighbor, God said, or through David, who's reflecting God's heart, him I will destroy. You sit, you speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things, you let your mouth loose in evil. Do you not know that God considers this, and God will deal with this. And I want to give you a biblical example. It's a colorful one. I didn't want to leave this subject without helping you see the, the clarity and the, the reality of this from God's point of view. So you're in Numbers chapter 12. The people of God are moving their way through the wilderness. They're complaining, which is a pattern. They don't like the menu they don't like the manna from heaven. They don't like the fact they don't have meat like they used to enjoy. So they say, Moses is burdened by their constant complaining and the volume of their needs. So God appoints 70 elders to partner with him. God gives quail from heaven. The people of God are really forced to eat in a way that helps them recognize their, the inappropriateness of their complaining. So if you want, you want quail, have some quail. Have so much quail, you're going to get sick because of it. And I'm going to judge you through giving you too much because of your complaining heart. That's what has preceded chapter 12. Moses has spoken. He's been given spokesmen, prophets, and the, the, the elders prophesied. So the people are uh, benefited by growing leadership, not just one man, but several men. Verse 
1, chapter 12. Then Miriam, she's the sister of Moses, and Aaron, brother, spoke against Moses. See that word? Familiar word, James chapter 4 word, spoke against Moses, rationale or reason, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had been married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Cushite, probably dark-skinned, certainly not an Israelite, so a foreigner. Uh, Miriam and Aaron accused of, or the Bible says of them, they have spoken against Moses because he married a woman who was either dark-skinned of a different race, in other words, she's illegitimate, shouldn't be in the place of influence she's in. Maybe they're thinking we're going to lose our influence because of her perceived influence as the wife of Moses. Whatever the case is, they spoke against Moses. Now, something to notice. The word speak against is feminine, which means Miriam is doing the speaking. Aaron is included because he's either saying it too or he's supporting her in what she's saying. Verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken, now watch this, only through Moses? Has God only talked through Moses? He's not the only one God talks through, is he? Has he not spoken through us as well? Which gives you a clue to what's going on in their heart. We want to undermine him and we want to elevate us. He's enjoying too much influence now he's married somebody we don't accept. Furthermore, she's in a place of influence we ought to have. Moses ought not to enjoy such esteem. Verse 2, sobering at the end, and the Lord heard it. Now look up for just a minute. Every time you speak against someone, the Lord hears it. Every time. Verse 3. And it's not justified their claims. Verse 3, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now that's an inspired commentary I would love to have said about me. But what it does say about Miriam and Aaron is, you're doing this for no justifiable reason. Verse 4, suddenly... And I highlighted that word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of the meeting. Now, how would you like to receive that invitation? So the three of them came out. Verse 5, then Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Yahweh, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. So if you're a prophet, this is how I operate with you as a prophet. I'm going to reveal it in these ways, vision and dream. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. So he's humble more than anybody in the world, and he's faithful in all my household. With him, Yahweh speaking, I speak mouth to mouth, like face to face, even openly and not in dark sayings. And behold, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid, here's our word again, to speak against my servant, against Moses? 
What did you not observe that would cause you to reconsider what you're doing against my honorable man, Moses? Faithful man, unique man. Watch the consequence when they spoke against God's servant, Moses. So, consequentially, the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he, God, departed. In other words, the communion, even if it was uncomfortable communion, this face-to-face with God, he departed. They lost that communion. Verse 10, but when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, now watch this, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. So it's an instantaneous leprosy, head to foot. Verse 11, then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us. Speaking against is a sin in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. It's not justifiable. It's unjustified. Verse 12, Oh, do not let her be like one dead speaking of Miriam, whose flesh is half eaten away as when he comes from his mother's womb. So this is a stillborn. He's likening her condition to a stillborn who's been in the womb and has begun to deteriorate. Her flesh is already beginning to deteriorate. She's just been struck with the consequence of her sinful behavior. And you say, well, why wasn't Aaron struck with that? The assumption is she talked and did the talking He was present and did the supporting. Both are guilty, but one endures the greater consequence, the one talking. Not because she's a girl. So husbands, don't elbow your girl. Now here's the humble man with a God-honoring heart. He cries out, Moses cries out to the Lord saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. Now, this is for the offending person who has diminished my wife, who has diminished me. I'm asking you to help her. Verse 14, but the Lord said to Moses, now watch this. If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So way worse than spitting in your father's face is speaking against a brother, speaking against her brother. Verse 15, so Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Why was she outside of the camp? Because she was speaking against her brother. She was seeking to elevate herself, seeking to lower him, diminish him, and doing it with her mouth. And the consequence was significant and sobering. So the net effect of this is to consider if God, let me put it this way. Let me ask this question. Does God change? So when you read the Old Testament, the God you meet there is the same God of the New Testament. 
And what he liked then, he still likes. And what he didn't like then, he doesn't like. What was acceptable then is, is, or what is not acceptable then, is not acceptable now. Do you think Yahweh is less offended when we speak against one of his elect children, our family members, to whom God speaks, think about Christians today, to whom God speaks openly through his inspired word and by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that resides in them. Do you think God is less offended when you injure someone who bears his covenant family name? And the right answer to that is, no, he's not less offended. It's not because it was Moses. It's because they are precious and valuable, every child of God. I want you to uh, turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 11. Because they're just tending to think, well, of course, this is Moses. He just rehearsed why it was so significant that he would respond in this way because of Moses, his stature, his, his privileges, his character. Now, Matthew chapter 11 is going to give you a little insight that I hope will drive home the point that when you do it to one another, you're doing it against someone that God highly values, that he esteems highly. John the Baptist is in prison. He's confused and doubting. Are you the one is the question. He sends and dispatches disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah? So he's in prison. Herod's got him uh, incarcerated because of his preaching about his immoral relationships. And he's ultimately going to be beheaded. And he's going through this trouble of heart, this doubting of mind. And Jesus receives and the one who says to him, verse 3, chapter 11, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And listen, if John the Baptist can have a hard day of faith, so can you. He baptized Jesus. He heard the voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who says, this, this one's greater. He existed before me. You can have a crisis of faith, even if you're a really good follower of God. Jesus sends back, verse 4, you tell John, you go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Some translations, blessed is the man who doesn't stumble because of me. Stumble in what way? Like John is. Because John doesn't understand me. Doesn't understand why he's leaving me in prison. Doesn't understand why it's taking so long to realize what Jesus came to, to accomplish. He's stumbling in his faith. He's stumbling in his perspective. You tell John, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because they don't understand me. Blessed is the man who trusts me. I'm validating with my works who I am. Don't fail to trust me, even though you don't understand the timing of my activity. But notice this, verse 7. And as those men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. 
And he asks a series of questions. Why, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, something is blown here and there. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. In other words, they're not prophets. Verse 9, but what did you go out to see? Now listen to this. Verse 9, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, this is a prophet, John the Baptist. But more than a prophet. Why would he be more than a prophet? Because, notice what it says, he is the personal messenger of God. Behold, I send, verse 10, this is the one of whom it is written. This is why he's greater than a prophet. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is God's personal messenger for God's personal son for your personal benefit. This is the preparer of the way. This is the way maker. He's more important than any prophet. That's what he said, someone greater. Now I want you to notice what verse 11 says. Truly I say to you. Now whenever Jesus does that, that's a get your attention statement. Not that all he says isn't important, but when he previews it or prefaces it with that kind of a statement, this is a listen up, pay attention. John's great. He's greater than any prophet. Greater than Moses, the law-giving prophet. Because of his function as a personal messenger for the personal son of God, as a personal expression to prepare God's people. That's why he's greater. But I'm telling you, verse 11, among those born of women... There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater in what way? Greater in their work, including Moses, including John the baptizer. Every kingdom of God citizen is a building the kingdom of God worker, not a prepare the kingdom of God messenger. They're not just talking for God. They are building the kingdom of God by talking for God, by living the life of God, rehearsing the message of God, the word of God. Every one of you in Christ, born of women, is greater than John the Baptist, and he was greater than anybody who preceded him. Isn't that humbling? Anybody saying that? I'm humbled by that. Is this too far-fetched? It's not meant to be far-fetched. It's meant to properly calibrate you into how you think about how God thinks about you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone, including Moses, greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you hear the least word? Isn't that encouraging? So stop tearing the least in the kingdom down. Because the least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest that preceded the occupants of the kingdom. So here's the thou shalt not flag. You can't do that. And you can't justify that. And you can't make it sound good. You just have to stop it. And here's the problem I observe in my Christianity. Sometimes I'm blind to the ways I do what I do. 
which, is, which invites the idea, well, then what do I do? I invite people, I need to invite people to help me see what I cannot see. You know, when we read the man's name, the third step today, there's a statement about his behavior and his condition. Do you know why that's loving? Because I'll tell you what, he doesn't want to hear his name read today. But you know why that's loving is because it helps him see what he cannot see. And in our humanity, we sometimes need brothers and sisters to say, hey, Harry, you need to see something so you can stop doing something that contradicts your claim, damages and destroys instead of builds up and lifts up. Because the antithesis of speaking down is lifting up with words. Stop it. Stop it now. Present, active, imperative, meaning it's required of what's called prohibition. Can't do it. All right, Acts chapter 4. So I'm going to call that a sobering illustration, Numbers 12, and I'm going to call it an honest cause for, or an, a cause for an honest evaluation. Now, in the time we have, I want to offer you this as an example to follow. In this final installment regarding this critical and relevant issue, we all face it because we all have a tongue and who can tame it, James 3. Here's a practical, encouraging, and compelling example, someone to follow and a life to model. I'm hopeful that this biblical illustration will cause you life reflection and a stronger Christian conviction. It's not just what somebody says as a Christian, it's what they do that inspires and strengthens our resolve. It is helpful. I know when Dr. John spoke on Friday night at Shepherd's Conference with a big knot on his head and a, a wrist bandaged from an iPad, which he never uses anything electronic. I know when he preached for 90 minutes, it inspired a lot of men. Harry Walls being one of them. If I can be 83 with heart issues, a fall, a wrist, and I can stand for 90 minutes and preach, that's inspirational. It causes guys to go, you know what? That's what I want to be. When I grow up, I want to be that. And I'm telling you, I wasn't the only one feeling that. You need those in your life. You need people ahead of you. This man is ahead of you. Acts chapter 4. We're going to talk about a familiar figure, but I don't know how much you know about him. He's called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's a compelling and inspiring example. Someone who reflects the spirit of Christ and the heart of God because his, he was born with the name Joseph. He was renamed Barnabas, being translated, verse 36, or verse 39 rather, the son of encouragement. The story begins in verse 32, early church, 
Pentecost has come, gospel is preached, persecution has begun. Verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed in the gospel that was being preached were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to all. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, so he's renamed because of, the, of his life quality and character, which translated means son of paraclesis, Holy Spirit, son of encouragement. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Para, alongside, kaleo, to call. Someone who comes alongside to support. The encourager, Barnabas. That man, verse 37, owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to talk about Barnabas today in the time that we have, and I want to ask you to consider his example. Because he is considered, in another parallel passage, and we'll talk about it, a good man, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He's a notable man, and let me give you a little bit of background as to who he was generally. Most of what we know about Barnabas comes from the book of Acts, which details his ministry alongside Paul, mostly. In general, he tra traveled through Judea and Asia Minor, spreading the good news to anyone who would hear it. According to the New International Encyclopedia of Bible Characters, Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus, who led not only Jews, but many Gentiles to the Christian faith. As a Levite, Barnabas would have been raised a Jew, most likely a wealthy family, schooled in Hebrew and in religious foundational instruction, probably instructed by Gamaliel like Paul. It's really probable that Barnabas knew Paul before Paul was converted and before Barnabas was transformed. Acts chapter 14 mentions Barnabas and Paul together. At that time, Paul was called Saul. And they were doing such amazing work that the people who they were ministering to, who saw the profundity of their power and influence, called them the names of Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. They called Barnabas Zeus, which was the father of the gods, the god of the sky and thunder. He was the lead god, if you would. Hermes was his spokesman. So early on, Barnabas was the key player noted as a key authority before Paul's ministry took its full effect. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, uh, in the early chapters of Acts, Barnabas's name is always mentioned first, Barnabas and Saul. And then in Acts 13, 13, 
the shift happens and it became Paul and the company who was with him. So it's then Paul. So you start out where Barnabas was the key influencer. The Greek said, this is Zeus. He's the leader of the gods. This guy here, he talks. Paul, at that time called Saul. So he was a respected figure. He was venerable. They acknowledged his leadership and his authority. He had profound influence. He was born of Jewish parents, tribe of Levi, educated as a Pharisee in the school of Gamaliel. That's generally who he was. I want you to consider what this passage says about why he was that way. Verse 32, and let me give you kind of a summary declaration just coming out of verses 32 through 33. I would say you would also be correct in saying this man, Barnabas, because of the words they were of one heart, one soul, not one of them. There was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land. So everybody is characterized by these characteristics, which include believers. Verse 32, the congregation of those who believed. So this is Paul or Barnabas would be an unselfish believer, verse 32. He would be an un, he would be a rather trustworthy steward. Steward, I chose that word because it says nobody claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. In other words, I'm a steward of somebody else's assets. Whose assets? God's assets. What kind of man was Barnabas? He was a believer. He was an unselfish believer because you're going to see him give his, sell his tract of land and entrust the assets. But he was a man who understood that he didn't own anything. He was a steward of everything. Nothing belonged to him. And that wasn't just Barnabas, but that included Barnabas. And he was part of a committed Christian, and I'm going to call it an abundant grace community. Verse 33, abundant grace was upon them all. So who was Barnabas? Well, he's what we should be, an unselfish believer, trustworthy steward, having no claim, and united one heart and soul, committed Christian and abundant grace community. What he was is a consequence, this is really what I want you to hear, was a consequence, I believe, of where he was. He was in a community of people who shared these virtuous values, and that community impacted him. He was a man who was in life-impacting and soul-shaping faith community, and I believe you can argue that it shaped who he was and how he was. And I want to conclude this thought with you by saying what Barnabas needed, we need. We need to be in a community that's unselfish. We need to be in a community that recognizes stewardship. What I have is not mine. It belongs to God for the purposes of God. And we need to be in a one-hearted, one-souled, united-for-the-purposes-of-God community experience that enables us to not only serve one another, but please hear me, but to be affected and impacted by one another, infected in a good way. Not with a deadly virus, but a life-giving pattern of conviction. Who he was? Unselfish believer, trustworthy steward. 
united and committed Christian and abundant grace community, what he needed, Harry Walls needs. And so do you. Do not underestimate the power of influence when you're in a community that unites together for the purposes of God, that glorify God, that are meant to honor him and bless people. I got a uh, text message yesterday. I was on the phone yesterday for a good while with a personal friend of mine that's been my friend for nearly 40 years. I met him at a marriage retreat I preached down at the Gulf Coast years and years ago. And he and his wife had come up to our home because they were struggling to have children. And they lived with us for a month while they went through that process at the University of Alabama Medical Center. They ultimately were able to have twins Karen and I were the godparents for their twins. Um, and uh, yesterday, he called me to let me know that one of his now adult children, I know, but no longer function in that role. They're, both kids are grown up. Daughter went to West Point. Son went to Auburn, graduated in the world of engineering. He's also a race car driver. And uh, a few months ago, uh, the call from the father, who's my friend, said that uh, I knew you would want to know this, but our son was in a racing accident in Fort Worth, and his C3 through 6 was damaged. He's, a, uh, he's paralyzed from the chest down. And um, he had a hard time saying it to me. I had a hard time hearing it, and uh, did what any Christian brother would do, tried to encourage and sympathize and and in the process of that conversation, I, I was just trying to help him see that there are no accidents with God, not nothing. And the God who controls everything is good. And the demonstrable evidence of that goodness is Jesus Christ on a cross, God's only begotten Son, bearing the sins of all those who would believe. That's goodness at its ultimate expression. And the God who never changes is still good in the ways he was good when he sent his son. And when his son took upon our sin, that good God is sovereignly ruling in every circumstance of your life. And you can rest assured that what has happened has been purposed for good, though it is the worst kind of feeling a parent can have. So we talked about that reality, if you don't calibrate according to that reality, you can't navigate life. It's the what ifs, it's the why gods. You just can't do it. There's no end to it. And the pain is insufferable. And if it's not, that pain is not addressed in a way that recognize reality and who God is and what God does and you don't end up in the space where you can not only embrace it but cooperate with God for it, it'll destroy you. So I'm attempting to do what a good friend and a brother would hope to do and um, I got a text after that conversation um, where he communicated to me his gratitude for our talk and the apparent benefit of it. But he included in that text, and I want to read it, a portion of it. He said, Harry, it's hard for me because I've been so disillusioned by the inconsistency of the church and those who occupy it. 
often with the misuse and manipulation of wealth and power. And it's hard to place my faith and trust in a community that seems to be so controlled by that and dictated by men. End quote. An obstacle to my faith, let me summarize, is what I see in the community that I need. And what you see, and and part of that involves the kind of the materialistic fixation on wealth and things. And that's a handicap to me. That's an obstacle to me. And I want you to notice that what the encourager did, the paraklesos, the son of the one who comes alongside, an encourager, what he did is what we should do. He encouraged in someone's need by using his stuff. This is encouragement at cost. He owned a tract of land, verse 37, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He liquidated it, and he entrusted it. And I found it interesting, I didn't remember this, but 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul's appealing to his apostleship and why you should trust him, he's saying, I don't take money from you. I have a right to receive benefit from you, but I reject it so that you'll trust me and know my motives. But he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Or are Barnabas and I the only apostles who must work for a living? Which caused me to say, once upon a time, Barnabas had assets. And now he doesn't have assets. What he traded away as an encourager. I'm going to use my stuff. And not only am I going to give it and trust it. I'm not going to control it. I'm not going to manipulate it. I'm not going to try to achieve something by the giving of it. I'm giving it. I'm entrusting it. And now I have to bear the cost of it. i got to work. What should we be that he was an encourager with our stuff? To encourage people at cost. Don't be a destroyer with your words. Be an encourager with your stuff. Be a Barnabas. Leave a kingdom impact by encouraging with the assets you have. As you see needs, invest for the benefit of others through the meeting of those needs. Several months ago, I taught you out of Titus chapter 3, the call of Paul through Titus to the people on the island of Crete to be kingdom influencers. And in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes to Titus after talking about Jesus Christ and the gospel and the effects of believing by grace in his work. Verse 8 says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is trustworthy, this claim of Jesus and his work, his transforming power, the gospel. 
He said, this is a trustworthy statement, and I want you to emphasize these things so that those who have believed God will take care to devote themselves to good deeds. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. Red and yellow, black and white, saved and unsaved, when God's people are motivated to do good deeds through the investing of their assets, it has kingdom influence. Listen to verse 14, Titus 3. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, don't miss this. The only way I'm fruitful is to take the assets that I'm a steward of and be willing to invest those assets as an encouragement to people. And the effect of that meeting of the pressing need is I am fruitful. And to say, I'm not going to use my assets. They're mine for my purposes is to become unfruitful. So I'm going to hold up on this side and say, don't be like Miriam. It's consequential. Be like Barnabas. Encourage with your stuff. You say, man, you don't know how poor I am. The only thing I can think that helps me is there are other spaces in the world that are really poor. And I've watched poor people host me in foreign countries and give me the food they were going to eat so I could eat it. Everybody has assets that they can deploy when they see a pressing need among the body of Christ, among the people of God. I'm going to argue even beyond the gates of God's people. Be a Barnabas. Be encouraging with your stuff. Encourage at cost. You know what time it is? It's that time. I got three more things I want to tell you about Barnabas. Because <laughs> there's some really interesting, and you can go ahead and get ahead of me. And uh, you can just do the Google thing and find out where Barnabas is mentioned. He really is. And there's three other big, significant characteristics of how to be an encourager. Because there's a reason he got that name. And there's three more of those. The first one is he shared his stuff. And he did it because he was in a community that that's what they did. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, reflect today on a sobering example and an inspiring one. And Lord, I know when I read this passage, it can cause me to believe, well, that was then and this is now. The whole idea of sharing at this kind of level is alien and it was part of the early church but is not meant to be a a heartbeat of the present day church and lord i would i would want to repent of that mentality and embrace with conviction that i'm a steward for the purposes of god for the good of men and i pray that we'll be faithful encouragers because there are pressing needs And we don't want to be unfruitful. We want to be like Barnabas, a man of encouragement. Not a destroyer, but a life impactor and life builder. A community extender. And we ask this 
by your grace, needing your help, recognizing our sinful selfishness, that we would become agents of grace that influence the world that watches. That's my prayer for us all, and I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.